Good morning. My name's Lee Taylor. I'm the pastor of discipleship here. So good to be in the house of the Lord. I was just thinking as we were just singing that last song, it just, I love being with the people of God. I love hearing your voices. I love just getting to be with one another. It's, uh, it's a, such a pleasure. It's such a joy to be able to be here. Uh, I'm going to traumatize a few of you this morning by having you think back on your junior high days. I know for some of you, you're like, please, I don't want to go there. I don't want to think about that. Some of you are in junior high and you're like, I, I have enough of it already. But when you think about that time, those years of junior high, you know, one of the most polarizing times of our lives, right? Where we are just constantly overwhelmed by different things. It's a kind of a season, a season of life that's truly black and white. We try to say that that's not true, but it really is for a lot of us when we were in junior high, or for those of you that are still in junior high. You start to think about those times we're so overwhelmed by wanting to be accepted. We're so overwhelmed by thinking about that. Now, there's still kind of generally two populations of, of, of students, kids that are in junior high age. You have those of us that, uh, you know, we're trying to make a statement with every single thing we are wearing, the latest trends, the newest brands. We're trying to tell the funniest stories and just make our presence known wherever we went, right? And then there were other groups that were those of us that might have uh, been very aware of everything that was going on, but wanting to kind of stay reserved, wanting to kind of look at what was going on, but not necessarily put yourself out there. You weren't flaunting your hobbies and you, you know, primarily dressed in earth tones. Uh, but uh, it was, it's a hard time. It's hard because we so much want to be accepted. Now here's the hard truth. Most of us adults want that acceptance just as much as every 13 year old kid. And we struggle with that. We struggle with those exact same things. Our deepest longing is to be known and loved. And ultimately by God, whether we realize that or not, maybe you think back if you weren't a believer when you're in junior high and you started to say, I still really desired to be known. I wanted to be loved. And then if you came to faith, maybe kind of like I did, it was more my junior high years where that really started to become a reality. It started to link those two things up that that truth, that desire for acceptance and love was fully met in Jesus Christ. But here's where many of us wrestle with, even today, whether you're a believer or not, we wrestle with this idea that God isn't that interested in us, that we feel somewhat overlooked of a new circumstance. Just get me into that, that next season of life. Get me into that next, or let me get that next achievement or that next thing. And if that's you, we're going to sit under the word today. I ask that you would just sit under the word today, that you'd receive it, that it would speak to you and pour into your heart to receive the comfort of our great God, the comfort of our text that we will see over and over this morning is that circumstances change, but God doesn't. Circumstances change, but God doesn't. So turn open to Isaiah 40 if you're not there already. 
We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. And before we kind of dig into the text, I want to give us a little bit of context uh, for this passage. You know, Isaiah was written in the 8th century BC, this prophecy. And, and this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 40 is really for those that were in the 6th century BC. The, these were the, is when the Israelites were, were in exile. They were exiles under, the, under Babylonian rule. And all around them, at this time, so try to put yourself in their context. All around them were, were temples and altars to Babylonian gods, such as, as Marduk and Shamesh and, and Iskor. And the Israelites would, would pass by these buildings as they were going about their day. And they would see bricks stamped and engraved with Nebuchadnezzar's name on these bricks. All these buildings that they're walking by, they're seeing all these temples and they're seeing the name of Nebuchadnezzar all around them. This infamous king, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king who destroyed the temple, sent them into captivity. Needless to say, these were some tough circumstances for the people of God. The people were distraught and displaced. Their God and their people seemed relatively absent. Where was God? Where was this great sense of belonging amongst their people? They felt unseen. And if you've been with us through these weeks in Isaiah, as we've been hitting some of these highlights, you've seen through chapters 1 through 39 that, that God, through Isaiah, primarily speaking, against, you know, speaking judgment and about the rebellion through Isaiah. Is that what he's going to continue to do here in Isaiah chapter 40? He does not. He proclaims comfort, salvation, patience, and hope. That's what he's proclaiming to the people here. Some of you might have these words or the, the kind of the music flowing through your head from Handel's Messiah, right? That a lot of that, that compilation of music from Isaiah chapter 40, I actually asked Greg, I said, maybe we can do like a little Messiah, Messiah medley this morning. Because <laughs> you know, if we did the whole thing, then it'd be like three or four sermons, whatever that would be, five sermons. But no, we're not going to do that this morning. But maybe you're thinking through some of that, those beautiful, the beautiful music, the words, the comfort that's proclaimed. Chapter 40 kind of turns the tone where we see restoration and redemption. God, through Isaiah, starts by speaking a word of comfort. And what is this word of comfort? Look down at the text here, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Does that sound familiar? You start to think about that in other, content, other passages in scripture. You are my people and I am your God. Despite your years of rebellion, despite the judgment that you deserve, I will feel like you could ever be associated with God because of your past. Maybe some of you don't want to be associated with God and you don't even know what you're doing here this morning. We're glad that you're here. Throughout all of scripture, one of the primary messages of grace is this, return to me and I will return to you. Return to me and I will return to you. This is a great word of comfort because being a child of God is the greatest longing of every human heart. Look down at verse two, 
Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The warfare has ended and her iniquity is pardoned. There's no greater comfort in all the world than restoration and redemption. And you see, we see these words here in Isaiah chapter 40, restoration and redemption, peace and forgiveness. Some people say that, that grace and forgiveness is not really in the Old Testament, but we have a perfect example here. That's obviously not true. And we see it here, grace, we see forgiveness. The great shepherd king is coming to put an end to all the warfare and to pardon their iniquity. What does it look like when a king is coming? What is the kind of the scene that is set when a king is coming into a, a new territory or into even into the, to the realm of his kingdom? Now, I know we don't have the most interactive bunch here at Village 7, so I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands, but I imagine in a group this size that we have a great many of you that are very intrigued and interested by the royal family, right? Now, <laughs> there are those of us that uh, maybe have entered in by way of the TV series, The Crown. Uh, I'm a big fan of that one. Uh, there are maybe some of you that have read biographies on Queen Elizabeth, or you tune into the big events and programs on the news stations. And then there are you lunatics out there who stayed up all night long, took off of work to watch the royal wedding. You watched like every minute of it. Um, but we're intrigued by royalty, aren't we? The days and weeks, even years of preparation for the coronation of King Charles was quite the ordeal. Millions of dollars were spent there was a whole schedule of event, news coverages of all the parties, all the events, what they were wearing, the ceremonies, every different thing that was going on. And King Charles was, would finally sit on the throne after decades of anticipation. And this is actually somewhat of the backdrop that we have here in verses three and four. Look down at the text with me. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our go, and the uneven valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. This was actually common practice when a king would come through a new territory that was not already maybe civilized, and there was not highways or things like that. People would work tirelessly to make a highway to arrange the, the, the construction of a certain city or a village so that the king could come through because a highway meant freedom. A highway meant access. A highway meant human flourishing and that and highway meant civilization. Even in the seemingly godless surroundings of, of being under Babylonian captivity, there is a sure hope. Isaiah is trying to give the people a picture of the king coming in, of highways being built, not just for the civilization of those people, but for the future hope, the freedom, the access, the human flourishing that would take place. Isaiah pointing forward to Jesus and also to Jesus's return. 
Some of you might be thinking of the words of John the Baptist in John chapter one, where he quoted these words of Isaiah saying, I'm the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. John the Baptist proclaiming, the king's in your midst. He's in your midst, the kingdom has come. One who will carve out highways and bring about restoration. God bringing the king coming, the reign, the restoration. We see that even from the beginning in creation and how God has ruled through kings and judges and speaking through prophets all the way to our text here with the Babylonian captivity and even in to Jesus. Through all this change, we do see that these circumstances change. God does not. Look at verse five. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Unlike King Charles or Nebuchadnezzar or any other king, when our king returns, when Jesus came and when he will come again, he comes in glory. He comes in glory. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. The Hebrew word for glory is the, the, the word kabod. And it literally means weight. That there's a weightiness to God coming. The glory that will be revealed. There's a weightiness. There's a gravitas. There is a magnitude. Remember, we have to understand these things about Jesus and about our God that he can be multiple things all at once, right? Jesus was indeed gentle and kind. He was a tender shepherd. But Jesus also is powerful. He comes in glory. When Jesus was walking on the earth and he was around the raging sea, he said, be still, and the sea listened to him. Jesus said, pick up your mat and walk, and a broken body listened to him. Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, and a dead person was raised to life. Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And people were made righteous. The glory of the Lord will be revealed in his son, Jesus Christ. He has been revealed. We will see it even come again. Jesus come again. The new heavens and the new earth. God's faithfulness is made evident here in this text. We even see this in other passages in scripture, Psalm 90 verses one and two, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God endures and his word endures. That's what we see here in these last couple verses, looking at verses six through eight, this amazing truth that we have. A voice says cry and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely but, but, but the word of our God will stand forever. You know, when I was thinking about these verses uh, several weeks ago when Chris 
was kind of assigning the passages for us, for Rich and I and for himself. And I, th- and I saw Isaiah 40 and I was like, and I looked at six or eight, I'm like, man, this is going to be great, right? I'm going to be able to talk about grass withering and flowers fading because we're in Colorado and that's all we have here, right? And now apparently we live in Seattle where all it does is rain and everything flourishes and grows. It's bizarre. I don't understand what's going on. But we still understand it. We are, it's not too far in the distant memory to know about flowers fading and, and grass withering, you know, and, and we understand these things. Most of us aren't too concerned about that. Uh, we aren't too concerned about grass and flowers, but that's not all God is saying through Isaiah here. He's not just talking about grass and flowers. He says, all flesh is like grass, all things are like grass. All your money is like grass. All your, your brain power is like grass. All of your, your, your physique, your muscles are like grass. All your achievements, all the 14ers you've summited are like grass. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Don't you want something to stand on? In this culture that we live in, where everything just seems like it's being tossed to and fro, the waves of our society and political and socioeconomic distress that we live in, don't you want something firm to stand on? Some of you guys are, are repping our new logo, right? You guys got this on your, on your water bottle or your cars or something like that. That's what this is all about. It's not about village seven per se. It's about the word of the Lord. It's about Jesus, that we see his truth. We see the gospel. We see the cross in all of scripture. We want something that we can stand on that is steadfast, the truth of Jesus Christ and the word of our God. That's what we're all about here at village seven. Because we serve a great and wonderful God, we're not going to look, if you look at these verses that are following in, in chapter 40 that we didn't read this morning, we're not going to look at that in detail, but just kind of scan through this. If you see this next section in verses 9 and following, because I just want to point out some of these encouragements that we have about the greatness of our God. And I don't know what you're going through this morning. I don't know what you've been going through this week. But maybe you just store away some of these truths. Store away these things about who our God is. This is who he is. He is powerful, and yet he is a tender shepherd. He carries us like sheep in his arms. He marked off the heavens with a span. The span was the distance from your thumb to your pinky. He's marked off the distance of the heavens like this. He didn't learn knowledge, justice, truth, and understanding. He is knowledge, justice, truth, and understanding. The nations are like a drop in the bucket. The United States, just like a drop in the bucket. Russia, like a drop in the bucket. A person made that. People are like grasshoppers to him compared to his greatness. To whom should we compare him to? To whom should we compare him to? Lift up your eyes, friends. Lift up your eyes. We live in a beautiful place, and when we lift up our eyes and we look to the heavens and we say, who is like our God? 
that just speaks the mountains into existence, that just forms our bodies and makes it just work, that causes nations to rise and fall. We can and we should be encouraged. They're speaking these words to the Israelites because they're under Babylonian rule. And so maybe they, they hear this encouragement and they're kind of encouraged for a week or a few days or a month or maybe even a year. And, they, and they're kind of, okay, let's remember who God is. But day after day, walking past the 53 temples of these gods that aren't gods, and they're constantly hit with these lies, things that are made by human hands that people are worshiping, and they begin to feel discouraged. They begin to feel, I mean, they're continually oppressed and thinking, where is God? Does, is God, does God see me? Look, look down at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. You ever felt like that? You say, I've, been, I've come to church, I'm encouraged, I'm excited, I've gone through this great study, or I've got this good relationship with a mentor, and things are going great, and then you continually find yourself in the same diagnosis that you just, that you don't have any good news. There's, there's no hope on the horizon for whatever that might be still without a job. Maybe you're in a season of life where you're, you're longing to have a child and still no child. Maybe you're an, a, a parent of an adult child and you would love to talk to your child. And you start to say, is my way hidden from the Lord? Is my right disregarded by my God? Where are you? I see these great comforts and then we see this great truths that we have in scripture, but where are you, God? Like the days of junior high, you feel so unseen, unloved, maybe even unwanted. Because of our circumstance that we might find ourselves in, we begin to start to put God's goodness on the chopping block. We start to say, God will be good if this happens. God will prove himself to be true if he does this in my life. Brothers and sisters, soar this away in your hearts that even when our circumstances may not change and we want them to change, God does not change. As Isaiah kind of continues in chapter 40, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And that is a great comfort to me. I wanna serve a God that I don't understand, don't you? If we understood everything about God, that means God would technically be less intelligent, less wise, less powerful than you. And I know some of you, I don't want a God like that. <laughs> he's all powerful and he's good. Those are two of the most profound statements in all of scripture, that God is all powerful and he's good. And if he's not one of those two things, we're in bad shape. Because if he's all powerful, but he's not good, then he can just be some angry tyrant that's in control of all things, some, some evil puppet master. And if he's not powerful, but he's all good, then he's kind of just like a buddy that doesn't have any power to do anything. You know, he's just, he's just kind of a teddy bear. 
But if he's all powerful and he's all good and he's unsearchable, that's the God that we have. That's the God that we want to serve. He has saved you from all your iniquities and there will be a day when all warfare will cease and everything will be made right. We long for that day to be with the Lord. I'm gonna close with a a happy Father's Day to all you fathers out there. Um, I'm a very, very proud dad. Um, Like most Sundays, most of you don't know this, but like most Sundays, I'm repping some of my socks that I get from my girls. It says, Papa Bear. (laughs) But uh, it it is a a fun day. Happy Father's Day to all you dads out there. Happy Father's Day to you, dad. If you're listening, I think you are. and uh, it's, it's fun to be able to, to celebrate these things. I, I love my dad. My dad, um, my dad is my hero. And uh, I think a lot of the best things about me came from my dad. But uh, he wasn't perfect. None of you dads are perfect. I've seen that firsthand. <laughs> but I remember talking to my best friend uh, several years ago, and we were talking about our dads. We go back to junior high together, and, and we were talking about our dean in your dad, when you're, when you're a kid, when you're a son specifically, I think, but we, you want there to just be a steel beam where it's just steadfast, impenetrable integrity and kindness, unmovable, right? You want that from your dad. You want to lean in. And, and, and those things are true. My dad has many of those things and I want to be those things. But my dad has let me down and I've let my girls down. All of us have left, let our, our kids down at some point. Um, but that longing of a son or daughter is not wrong. It's not wrong to have that longing for that steadfastness, that stability, that integrity, that just unmovable, unchangeable nature. Hebrews 13.8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so it's our job as, as dads and moms to, to, to point our kids to the one who truly is unchangeable, the one who truly is steadfast, the one who truly is unmovable and even unsearchable. We want our kids to know that. And we can do a little miniature picture of that. We can point to him of the one who does not change. That's what Isaiah, God through Isaiah, trying to encourage the people with. Look to the one who will not change. That's what John the Baptist was doing, saying, don't look at me. I'm just a voice. I must decrease. He must increase. That's what our heart longs for. Circumstances change. People change. But our God does not change. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you do not change, Lord God, that you are the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And we pray that those truths would seep deep into our hearts, would encourage our faith, would strengthen us, would nourish us, so that we may proclaim your truth, the gospel, all the days of our life, that we will know who you are, no matter what circumstance we might find ourselves in, and that it will in turn fill our hearts with gratitude and love. Who is like you, O oh God? 
that you should love us, that you are mindful of us, that you would send your son Jesus to die on the cross for us so that we might have life. We thank you, Lord God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.